So um, actually I have, this is the first Sunday in Advent, and I wanted to pass out the Advent reading that we're going to be um, focused on, so that was read earlier, so ably, so if we can uh, start passing those out, it's from Isaiah chapter uh, 2, verse 1 through 5, that'd be helpful, we're just going to walk through it, um, meaning I'm going to talk, uh, and um, Advent features um, a set of readings in the liturgical, you know, the churches that have a set read, the Bible readings that are tied to the church calendar. There's a set of readings for uh, the season of Advent, which just means coming or impending arrival. It's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And uh, the Advent readings, especially from the Gospels uh, and the prophets, have sometimes been characterized as the end times teachings of Jesus. If that term knots your stomach, I think I know why. It's the cultural deposit, actually, of a 20th century British-American doctrinal novelty called dispensationalism, and you don't have to remember that for the test, um, because this uh, particular um, teaching was popularized in the Left Behind movies, uh, starring Nicolas Cage, uh, based on uh, a 12 set, a set of uh, series of novels by the same name, Left Behind, which sold 65 million copies. So it's had its influence in the culture. It's a violent vision of the end times. In book 11, uh, titled The Glorious Appearing, Jesus merely speaks and the bodies of his enemies are ripped open, forcing the Christians to drive carefully to avoid hitting the splayed and filleted bodies of men and women and horses. I don't know what he had against the horses. Um, and of course, many like responsible leaders and Christian scholars denounced this, uh, this teaching, but 65 million readers, it has an influence, doesn't it? So it's in the air. In this view, uh, Jesus predicted very specific things about the literal end of the, of the space-time universe in these gospel sayings that are quoted. But in fact, the sayings of Jesus in this category refer actually to an impending crisis in Jerusalem, which was the destruction of the temple, something that began in 70 AD, so about 40 years after his death. Uh, when the first of three Jewish revolts uh, were crushed by Rome. This period went from like 70 AD to 136 AD and it left Jerusalem in ashes. It was not the end of the world, but it was the end of their world. It was the end of Israel in its homeland. Um, this view uh, that's uh, represented in the Left Behind series really ignores the historical context of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels and the context of the Hebrew prophets that he quotes in these sayings. So today we're going to look at one of those uh, Hebrew prophets, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. You now have, have it to look on. You can take notes on here if you want to, of course. Um, so Isaiah is writing seven centuries before the time of Jesus. Uh, Israel's uh, story to date has had 
uh, about six major chapters, and Isaiah is writing in the last of these six. So the six chapters in Israel's story would be first the creation and the early founders, which is found in the book of Genesis. We have the Exodus period, where Israel's in Egyptian exile and bondage and slavery to Pharaoh, uh, the, following the uh, freedom march and the wilderness wanderings under Moses, a name you may have heard. The third chapter would be entering the promised land, the land of Canaan under the leader Joshua. Then there comes the golden era of King David. Uh, uh, many of the, the Psalms are attributed to David. And then Israel adopts in the fifth um, chapter of its history, Israel adopts the trappings of empire under Solomon. He creates a huge army. He, he does like heavy taxation to fund the palace and the army. He's trying to make like a big emperor. And then this is followed by a period of civil war and decline and eventually exile. So Isaiah is writing during this period, this uh, opening verse, you see verse 1 in your reading, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this preface even reveals uh, Israel's sad condition. So this is not a word for the 12 tribes of Israel because they don't exist anymore. The federation of the 12 tribes has been dissolved by civil war. And then the 10 northern tribes have been crushed and dispersed into Assyrian exile, never to return actually with their identity intact. So there's all these things about the lost tribes of Israel that comes from this period. They, were, they never recovered. Judah, one of the 12 tribes, uh, alone remains with a very tiny tribe called Benjamin in the south of Israel near Jerusalem. So this is the term, the Jews, or Judaism, is derived from this tribe, the Judahites. So this is, in a sense, the beginning of what we call the Jewish era as contrasted with Israel, which was the 12 tribes, if that makes sense. So I is writing uh, in this decline exile period. Um, the prophets, uh, for those who were left behind from the Assyrian exile, including uh, Isaiah and Micah and others, are all battling the longing that um, the, the Jewish people at that time had to return to the empire days of Solomon when they were powerful and had a mighty army and were a regional power. But the prophets see Israel's desire to make Israel great again, to use that language, as like a gross perversion of her call. Uh, Israel's greatness is not to be found in a return uh, to the bygone glory days of Solomon's empire ambition. Her strength is in her nearness to Yahweh, uh, which is manifest in vulnerability, actually in weakness, which is its own kind of strength, and concern for the poor, and faithful covenant love of neighbor. So in a time of social distress, it's really good and powerful and helpful and empowering for us to catch a vision of a better future. But the content of this vision also matters. There's lots of uh, visions of the future that are presented when a society is in distress, but the content of the vision really matters. So 
the best visions are not a rehash on some bygone glory days. The best ones are like every baby ever born, a, a never been before, like all things new. The best visions are like that. And this vision that Isaiah is giving us in, in the reading is an example of that. This is Isaiah's alternative to make Israel great again by returning to Solomon's empire. It's a vision that's very different than that. It's a vision worth longing for. It's a vision worth working toward. And that's what visions are about. They don't, we don't work toward them. They're not worth anything. So let's just read um, Isaiah, Isaiah 1, verse um, 1 through 5 together. The word that Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zion is like another word for Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I just want to comment on four things about that characterize this vision. First thing is it's a vision of um, crushing oppression ended. And if we don't get that context, we're going to totally misread it. So we, we often misread texts like this in the Bible because we are citizens of like the global superpower and we don't need no exalting like this. Uh, you know, we're what, 4.4% of the global population. We use 25% of global resources. So like, you know, we're, we're doing basically fine. Um, and we don't need this kind of exaltation that Isaiah sees for, for his people. Um, Israel at this time is, like I said, a shell of her former self. And that those 10 of the 12 tribes have been wiped out. Imagine like, you know, 45 of the states being just obliterated. Uh, there's only Judah and tiny Benjamin remaining and they're under threat of Assyrian conquest. Soon the Assyrian armies are going to surround Jerusalem. They dodge that bullet at this point in time, but they get another one later. So the experience of national devastation uh, in the nation that Isaiah is speaking to would be equivalent to like Syria today. It was a devastating time in the life of Israel. So this language, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains. This is not to be taken literally. It doesn't mean there's going to be a, you know, like a tectonic, you know, rearrangement. Um, the, the mountain of the Lord was really like the highest elevation in Jerusalem. It wasn't, it probably wouldn't even qualify as a ski slope in Michigan. And that's not saying much. Um, it's really the vision of a crushed oppressed people rising to a place of dignity and honor after having been stripped of all their human dignity through brutal violence from the empire of, in this case, Assyria. So visions like this are given by God to empower oppressed people. That's their point. 
Um, you know, the, the famous I Have a Dream speech was first given in Detroit, my hometown, in Cobble Hall, to the largest civil rights demonstration to date. I think it was 125,000 people. They didn't all fit into Cobble Hall where King first gave that speech. And, and the, the march was protesting, um, is the largest protest to date of segregation in the South and of... Uh, inequality in wages and, and housing in the north when Detroit had um, a mostly white and racist police force. I lived in Detroit at this time. It was, it was something else. Uh, then in D.C., uh, several weeks later, this it was given to a rally twice its size. And again, it was a rally for economic justice for, for African Americans. So some, sometimes King is now being claimed by everyone who opposes any policies he ever, ever supported. Um, but we have to remember the original context. Visions like this are for the oppressed. They don't work as a commencement dress for the University of Michigan, right? Uh, they're for oppressed people. Uh, the message for the rest of us is to see how God sides with the oppressed so we can understand that our blessed future is connected to our standing with them, not over them. So this is the context of the work of the Hebrew prophets, especially Isaiah here. It's, it's, a, it's the end of oppression that he's seeing, and it's important for the oppressed people to picture a future in which the oppression is gone and then to work toward it. Um, secondly, it's a vision of the end of sacrifice, uh, which is also the end of scapegoating. So the mountain of the Lord's house is a reference to the temple in Jerusalem. Again, it's not a real temple. It's the highest elevation in the city. But interestingly, even though the temple is invoked with this language in Isaiah 2, there is no mention at all of the main business of the temple, which is sacrifice, right? I mean, there's no mention of sacrifice here. You'd expect, like, all the nations shall stream to it to be followed by to offer sacrifices to the God of Jacob. But instead, it's different language. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, reference to the temple, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the wor word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what's, what's going on here? Well, Isaiah is a key player in the biblical project to unmask the scapegoat mechanism. So, you know, in, in short, we humans constrain our violence, we contain our violence by projecting our group anxiety and conflicts that are multiplying on a single individual or a minority group. We then believe false accusations against them and we turn on them to stigmatize, exclude, or kill them or mostly to stand by while others do this. And this process, this scapegoating process, serves a function. It relieves our many rivalries and it brings a period of temporary peace, but it's a false peace. This has been going on from the foundation of the world and the Bible kind of depicts this as, in a sense, the beginning of human society and culture. This mechanism, though, absolutely depends on everyone believing a lie that the scapegoated person or group is guilty of the accusations made against them. 
And in, in antiquity, all the literature indicates that people universally bought that lie. That there was a long period in human history where the idea that someone would be, um, you know, excluded and killed bringing peace to the nation, that that person was innocent, it was just unheard of. There are no stories in the ancient myths or the ancient literature that indicate the innocence of such victims until we get to the Hebrew Bible. And then for the first time in ancient literature, we have stories about people who are singled out like this and excluded or killed, and they are innocent. And this is, a, this is like the beginning of the uh, unveiling, the uh, unmasking of this scapegoat mechanism. Animal sacrifice fits into this because animal sacrifice is something that God allowed among, among his people to regulate this unconscious tendency to divert it from human sacrifice where it originated to animal sacrifice. And we, see the, we can see that in the unfolding of the, of the Bible as well. Isaiah, Isaiah anticipates a time when God will bring all sacrifice to an end by exposing definitively for all to see this scapegoat mechanism through his suffering servant, which is later on in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, a text that Christians use to apply to Jesus being crucified, an innocent victim vindicated by God. This is the unmasking of this mechanism. Along the way, Isaiah decries the need for any sacrificial victims. So he says things like, in English, the translation is great, I detest the bull on your altars, you know. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Jesus, who comes seven centuries later, comes to fulfill Isaiah's vision, and he repeats this saying from Isaiah, go see what I meant when I said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This was a favorite saying of Jesus that he quoted from Isaiah. So this is a vision of God's people finally being freed from their addiction to sacrificial violence to contain their violent ways. And then third, you'll notice it's a vision of radical disarmament, isn't it? I mean, sometimes this is, this is called, a, uh, there's a sequence of visions like this in Isaiah that are called the peaceable kingdom. Um, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Um, familiar words from the Bible out there in the culture. You know, normally nations are disarmed only by their conquerors, right? I mean, World War II, Japan and Germany were disarmed by brutal acts of violence um, against them. The firebombing of Dresden killed, I think, 25,000 civilians in one night. Uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki far exceeded that. And these acts of violence brought the Axis powers to their knees and they were disarmed uh, forcefully. But this is not the vision that Isaiah has. Isaiah sees a world in which violence plays no role, not even in restraining violence. So this is why Jesus predicted a period of intensifying conflicts after the scapegoat mechanism is unmasked by his death and rising. Like 
the scapegoat mechanism offloads human violence for a, a period of time from the majority to a small minority. So it's kind of functional. It works to keep a kind of peace and it's been operating like this throughout human history. So the unmasking of this mechanism is a kind of a dangerous thing. It can lead to a period of even intensifying conflicts because you don't have the scapegoat mechanism working like it used to. Remember, the scapegoat mechanism doesn't work if enough people realize that the excluded person or group is innocent, right? It depends on this, like, idea that, it, that these, these people are always guilty, the groups are always guilty, then it works. Um, so once you take that away, you've got, like, an increasing time of conflict in society. So the distress of the end times that Jesus is talking about isn't caused by divine violence, is caused by increasing tension in human societies that don't have the ancient scapegoat mechanism working as well as it used to to fall back on. And that's what we're seeing in our society today. That you know, there are attempts at scapegoating, but everyone isn't taken in by it, you know? And so the, the conflict just continues and, and there's attempts at more scapegoating and more different groups are scapegoated in it, but it never really works to bring peace because there's enough people who see it going on and so the conflicts are just continuing. That's like the distressing thing that we're seeing in, in many, especially Western societies these days. The Sermon on the Mount is like a survival manual for societies that can no longer restrain violence effectively through the scapegoat mechanism. You know, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's Gospel, sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. What does this call for? It's the teaching of Jesus. It calls for what Isaiah foresaw, the voluntary disarmament. Not being forced to disarm, but voluntarily disarming at all levels. So the Sermon on the Mount is no judging, uh, no contempt. Uh, uh, turn the other cheek when you're insulted. Don't return the insult. Love your enemies. Forgive those who harm you. Je and Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says this is the narrow path that leads to life compared with the wide path that leads to destruction. So the, the Sermon on the Mount really is commentary on Isaiah's, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isaiah saw it far off. Jesus is like preparing people to live in that era. So Martin Luther King quoted this verse in Isaiah uh, about not, not learning war anymore um, in his last Sunday sermon before he was assassinated. So he spoke again in Memphis uh, where he was assassinated. That says, I you know, I, I, I won't get there with you, but I, you know, I, I see, I've been to the mountain, and I see the coming of the glory. This was the Sunday sermon before that in D.C. at the National Cathedral, and the sermon was titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution. And listen to what King said. It's no longer a choice, my friends, between violence and nonviolence. It is either nonviolence or non-existence. I believe today that there is a need for all people of goodwill to come with a massive act of conscience 
and say in the words of the old Negro spiritual, we ain't going to study war no more. A direct quote of that Isaiah verse at the end of our reading today. So, it's the end of sacrifice, it's the end of scapegoating, and it's showing the importance of the Sermon on the Mount if the scapegoat mechanism isn't working anymore. It's like on all of us to deal with our violent nature in all of our relationships. And we do that by not judging. We do that by not insulting one another and returning insult for insult. We do that by loving our enemies, not hating them. We do that by forgiving people who harm us. And like the fate of the world is in our hands because the old mechanisms to bring peace have been taken from us through the unmasking of the scapegoat mechanism. So forth. That's a lot, isn't there? Woo! Glad I got through that section. Fourth, there's, and this is the last point, there's an, an advanced unveiling of the spirit as the opposite of accusation. This is going to deliver for you if you can hang on to it. In, in Isaiah, there's an advanced unveiling of the spirit of God as the opposite of accusation. So stick with me. The New Testament has one new term to refer to the bad spirit and another new term to refer to the good spirit and they're connected to each other these terms so the new term for the bad spirit is the Satan it's not a proper noun in the Greek it's just the Satan and it means the accuser and we see this in the New Testament in a way that you just don't see it in the Hebrew Bible. I think the Satan is mentioned maybe once or twice in the, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's on the lips of Jesus all the time. He sees the work of the Satan all over the place. Uh, and it simply means the accuser. It's his word for like the bad spirit that works on humankind. And the new term for the good spirit is the paraclete which is just derived from the Greek, the paraclete. Well, what's the paraclete? That just is a judicial term that means the advocate for the defense. So the defense attorney, the one who is like standing with the guilty person and trying to get the best possible deal for the guilty person or standing with the person who has been accused of a crime but is innocent, you know? It's easy to have the lawyer jokes until you need a lawyer. And then you're like, oh, thank God for the lawyer. It's like the doctor who fixes your hemorrhoids. It's like, thank you, doctor. You know, the, the paraclete is the advocate for the defense. Maybe that wasn't the best image to plant in your mind at this time. I just, just forget that. It, it wasn't in the notes. That's all I can say. But think about it. If you start thinking about the Spirit of God, as the advocate, the one who defends you against accusation. Doesn't that change your vision of who God is? I mean, it's so natural for us to think of God as the principal, you know, the teacher who sees you doing it wrong and catches you. Um, we, our vision of God naturally is God the accuser. That's how many of us think about God, and that's what keeps us distant from God. That's what keeps us just like playing at religion, 
so we don't actually have to get close to God. But in the New Testament, accusation is the work of the bad spirit, the Satan. And the good spirit, God's spirit, is the opposite of accusation. It's the defense advocate, the one who stands up for you, even when you're guilty, and especially when you're innocent and gets the best deal for you, is on your side. So where is this, uh, the hint of this in, in Isaiah? You may ask, thank you for paying attention and asking me to get back to the text. It's in that line that says, he shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. He shall arbitrate for many peoples. Not against many peoples, but for many peoples. So you're in an ugly uh, business dispute and you remand, remand your case to binding arbitration and you meet with the arbitrator and you get the impression that she is not on your side by the question she's asking you. And this is very bad news, right? But what if it's just the opposite? What if you meet with the arbitrator and the arbitrator seems to be for you, not against you, and then in her ruling, it's just all for you. I mean, that's very good news, isn't it? That's the sense of he shall arbitrate for many peoples. So the, the vision of Isaiah, and this pops up in, later in Isaiah's writings, suggests that he's seeing a great diplomatic summit in Jerusalem, um, which, you know, is a holy city now for the three major world religions. But tellingly, it's not a victory for one nation at a, the expense of the others, isn't it? It's not that. It's he shall arbitrate for many peoples. So we, we've entered an era of rising nationalist ideologies, haven't we? I mean, we see this in Europe, in a recent election in France. We see it now in the United States. We see it in the Philippines, you know, <laughs> new nationalism. And there's always scapegoating connected to nationalism whenever it rises. In the Philippines, the guy's going after all the drug addicts, right? And thousands of drug addicts are being summarily killed by government, you know, forces without, without even so much as a trial. Um, We've entered this era again, and nationalism is always a symptom of rivalry, which is the mark of the realm of darkness in the Bible, uh, not the realm of God, especially in the teaching of Jesus. So if we're under the influence of the good spirit, named by the Messiah, the advocate, we will be suspicious of the voices of accusation which are named by the Messiah, the Satan. So it's very stark in the New Testament. All the, all the like nuance is stripped away. And sometimes the starkness is helpful for us to encounter. And this will make us, if we, if we receive this vision, this is going to make us all conscientious objectors to every attempt to, to scapegoat others, including our enemies. So we'll be moved instead by Isaiah's vision of a better future. And this is the vision we will hope for 
And this is the vision we will work toward. And if we're not working toward it, we're not hoping for it. Um, we'll look for opportunities to disarm ourselves, to lay down our weapons. Uh, being right will mean less to us than it used to, and not more. Winning the argument will lose its luster for us. Uh, our victories at the expense of other people in, in the workplace, in, in school, in our family interactions, our victories at the expense of others will, will start feeling hollow to us as we lock on to this vision. So we're going to uh, close with a time of um, quiet reflection. And I, uh, you can use the um, text here on the paper if you'd like. Because what I'll do for the time of reflection, and it, we call it quiet reflection rather than silent, because, you know, there's gurgling noise, there's babies making noises, there's interruptions. We can all handle that. Quiet is what we're looking for, not silence. Um, what I'll do is I'll just break this text up into three parts. And I'll give you like a, a guiding thought uh, to consider as, as I read that first section and then I'll give you a little pause for you to reflect on that kind of to personalize this text for your own situation and then I'll go on to the second section give you like a guiding thought and then read it you can reflect on that and the third uh, is how we'll how we'll do this so if you're if you're game if you want to do this you can spend the time however you want to it's America so you can think about anything don't have to go through this but if you want to play game play ball with this just uh, relax, get yourself in a comfortable position. Uh, maybe close your eyes if that works better for you. Uh, maybe take in a deep breath just to in through the nose and out through the mouth to relax. And in this first section, let the words of the prophet apply to you in any ways that you can identify with Israel under oppression. So you might reflect on any way that you have been dishonored by others, um, perhaps scapegoated for some difference uh, in your family, in society. Uh, and if there's nothing like that in your life, imagine these words applying to someone that you know who has felt this in their life. And as you let the words wash over you, picture that oppression being lifted Picture a time coming when the people who are just ignorantly discriminating against you or oppressing you, receiving instruction to the contrary from God and changing their ways. There, there is a future like that coming, Isaiah says. So the first section, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction 
and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. So sit for a little while longer and picture a God who will arbitrate for you, not against you, and for anyone who is oppressed. And then in this next section, which I'm about to read, let the Spirit show you a part of your life where you could voluntarily disarm yourself. Meaning, you know, move from a posture of fighting to a posture of building up. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now sit with that for a while. And then in this final section, just invite the Spirit, whom Jesus identified as the advocate, not the accuser. Identify that Spirit as the light of the Lord and invite that light to be shining in your heart. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Sit with that for a little while longer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be. Amen. Amen. All right.